This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. The South Dakota Stories, Volume 7. My trip to South Dakota was the best summer ever. Now I don't need to go to Mars because I've been to the Badlands. And I caught a bigger walleye than Dad when we went to the Missouri River. Then I rode my bike through these huge rocks called needles. Ooh, I also saw my first herd of bison, even a fuzzy furry baby one. I can't wait to go back and see more. There's so much South Dakota, so little time. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man who thinks, kiss me, I'm Irish, is a Valentine's Day greeting. He is the very lovable captain. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Happy Valentine's Day to everybody celebrating. For those who don't celebrate Valentine's Day, happy Taco Tuesday. Today in the garage, we are drinking Island Reserve Russian Imperial Stout by the wonderful people at Cisco Brewers Incorporated. Here's a great after-dinner beer for everyone, Captain. Cisco Brewers Island Reserve Russian Imperial Stout has a jet black pour. It's full-bodied, very dark in color, good coffee and chocolate flavor with nice hints of fruit and finishes dry. How many bottle caps do you want to give this? Let's give it four and a quarter bottle caps out of five. This after-dinner dream was brought to us by this outstanding garage team. First up, we have Stephen and Robin in Terre Haute, Indiana. Two of our favorites. Cheers to Stephen and Robin. Now let's head on over to the Sunshine State. That's right. We're going to say thank you to Jonathan in Boca Raton, Florida. Jonathan says, I remember the mall murders. That was episode 43. I live just three miles from there, and you guys covered that case very well. Thank you, Jonathan. Next, we have Sonia in Taunton, Massachusetts. Let's stay in the great state of Massachusetts and say hi to Eve of Destruction in Wyland. Also, we have Paula up in Mount Pleasant, Michigan, who says, check out Mountain Town Brewing. I'm guessing this next one is from Michigan as well. We have Carol, who says, I love you guys, even though I'm a Wolverine. And Nick uses whom and whomever incorrectly most of the time. So for those of you scoring at home, that's Carol too and Nick nothing. And last but not least, let's go to Elizabethtown and give a big shout out and a big thank you to Chad. Chad says, I've been a fan since day one and my library has grown extensively because of your recommended reading. So thank you to everybody who pitched in for the beer fund this week. And if you want to do so for next week, go to truecrimegarage.com and click on the donate button. 
And for everything true crime, check out truecrimegarage.com and you can follow us on all social media platforms. Stop the show right now and follow us on YouTube. All right, Captain, everybody gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer, and let's talk some true crime. Unsolved crimes in Texas, the yogurt shop murders. Four teenage girls were murdered in North Austin at the yogurt shop. It was set on fire. And when it was put out by firefighters, that's when they found the bodies inside. Tied up, stacked on top of each other. All the girls shot in the head, execution style. The firefighter with me tapped me on the shoulder and pointed down. And he asked me, is that a body? And I I had to step back. And it it was. I saw another body. I knew that, that it wasn't right. Something was not right. I mean, play that over in your mind time and time again. If we ever get to a point where we have a national database for some of the different subtypes of DNA that we have, uh, that could be one of the keys to to bringing this investigation back into the courtroom. Nineteen ninety one in Austin, Texas, four teenage girls were bound and killed in a small yogurt shop. The store, of course, was robbed. And now twenty five years later, this case remains unsolved. The yogurt shop murders took place back in December of nineteen ninety one. This case has gripped the city of Austin since, and it has been quite the drama. Mm-hmm. First of all, you have the horrible murders that took place, but then you have an investigation with many peaks and valleys. I had heard of this case years ago, but never really looked into it. And I do want to add that this case has been requested to be covered on this show by many. When I first started looking into this case, well, first of all, it's a very strange case with strange circumstances. Mm -hmm. But as I got knee deep in this thing, it started to occur to me, and I I can't shake this thought, that this case is like a meshing of two cases that we have covered before. First, you have... It's like the Burger Chef murders, you know, Mm -hmm. that we covered back in episode two. And also very much like the West Memphis three case that we covered in a three-part series in episodes 40 to 42. And I'll tell you why I'm making these connections here. First, the Burger Chef murders, for maybe more obvious reasons, both of these events took place in places of business, uh, both being food or snack places Mm -hmm. involving a robbery and ultimately the killing of persons in the store. In the Burger Chef case, all of the persons killed were working at the store at the time that night. And they were mainly teenagers. Yeah, and they were actually taken to another location first. But nonetheless, it's quite a similar situation. Now for the West Memphis 3 case and the mm-hmm. connection there, the reasons are a little more subtle. But it's, it's well, let's say, quote, unquote, the interesting confessions. Basically, little to no evidence 
but just a simple confession or confessions that led investigators to persons they believe to be responsible for the murders in both cases, being that of young men, or more appropriately, a group of teenage boys. And in both cases, the West Memphis Three, and what you know, a lot of people call this the yogurt shop murders, I kind of view it as the Austin City Four. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's four victims, and there's going to be four major suspects. Uh, but with with both of those cases, we're talking about horrendous murders, very horrifying. Yes, yes. So this all takes place on a Friday, December 6, 1991. 17-year-old Jennifer Harbison drops off her little sister, 15-year-old Sarah. Mm-hmm. Now, Sarah is with her friend, who is 13 years old. Her name is Amy Ayers. She drops them off at a local spot. They are going to catch a movie and hang out afterwards. Jennifer had to go go to work that evening. She worked at the I Can't Believe It's Yogurt Shop. This is located in a strip mall on West Anderson Lane in Austin, Texas. I Can't Believe It's Yogurt is a basically a frozen yogurt chain. And a, mm-hmm. similar to like a Froyo. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we used to have one of these back in the day, probably around the time of this crime here in in this city. Um, And it's a great place to drop in for a snack, especially in summertime in the hot days. A great place to take a date to. You know, these are usually smaller shops. Ice cream shop jobs are normally run by teenagers, and it's a Friday night, so we don't even actually have an adult on staff. We have Jennifer Harbison, who is working the closing shift with another 17-year-old girl, Eliza Thomas. And as said, this is the evening shift, the closing shift. Jennifer and Eliza would be closing up the shop for the night at the end of their shifts. Now, keep in mind, this is not a huge store, so it will just be the two of them cleaning up and closing the shop for the night. And this is something that they had done before. Sometime later in their shift, Jennifer's little sister, Sarah, and her friend, Amy, arrive at the yogurt shop. They're going to help the two older teenagers with the closing duties and then catch a ride with Jennifer afterward. There was going to be a, uh, a sleepover that night. Some The closing time was scheduled for 11 p.m. So during this time, you know, we, we've all seen this done before or we've worked at similar establishments. And this means not only do you have your doors open and you're working through your your customer line and, and ensuring everybody's having a good time. Well, there's probably not a huge customer base at the, on this day because it is December. But it is Texas, so it is, it's, wow, well, that's it's a true. warmer environment. So, I actually didn't think about that. Yeah, like here in Columbus, some of the ice cream shops even close for the winter right, time. Right, right, right. So this is something we're not really accustomed to. But during this closing shift, not only are you trying to uh, keep the customers happy and make sure everybody's served in a timely manner, mm-hmm. but you're also doing closing duties. You know, you're cleaning up the place and closing it for the night. And it requires a certain amount of uh, administrative type uh, duties where you'd be, collect, you know, counting the money and filling mm-hmm. out some paperwork and maybe doing a little bit of light inventory or paperwork. And then on the flip side, you're going to have a little bit of just hustle and bustle. You know, you got to sweep the floors, mop the floors, you know, wipe down the windows, all that stuff. And we, we know how this goes down, right, Captain? Because when, when people that are working at a store or working at a restaurant like this, you, if, especially on a Friday night, when you have things that you want to do afterwards, mm-hmm. usually you're trying to do some of these closing duties even before you've officially locked the door for the night. You know, you're trying to, trying to expedite the whole situation so you can get out of there in a timely manner. Mm-hmm. Around 10 p.m., a man named Daryl Croft enters the shop, and he is there to buy yogurt for himself and two friends. 
Now, Daryl Croft is quite observant. He's a former police officer. Yeah, or he's just buying three portions for himself. And- <laughs> uh, at, the, at the time, he ran a security company. Um, there's a line of customers, and Croft noticed that there is a man who is waiting in line, but this man is letting people go before him. The man is wearing a military fatigue-style jacket. Mm-hmm. Uh, this man approaches Croft and asks him if he's a cop. I guess Croft had one of those vehicles, you know, with the lights on top of it. So obviously the vehicle looks like a police car, but it is in fact his security vehicle. Uh, So the man asks him if he's a cop and then offers to let Croft uh, take, you know, place his order before him, go in line before him. Croft is a bit put off by this and thinking that the man might be up to something. So Croft does not take the man up on his offer. Thus, it's now time for the guy in the army jacket to place his order, and he asks simply just for a can of soda. He doesn't order any yogurt at all. After the man paid for his can of soda, he went to the back of the store. Uh, Croft then approaches the counter, mm-hmm. and he places his order, and he asks Eliza. Eliza is the shift supervisor that night, so she is on the register. Uh, he asked, you know, where did the man go? Why did he go to the back? And she says, you know, he had asked to use the restroom and that she had allowed him to the back of the store to use the store's restroom. Croft still is put off by the man and decides that even after receiving his order, he's going to stick around a little longer than necessary. You know, he kind of wants to keep an eye on the place. Right. It's, you know, it's his nature. He's a former police officer. Um, but after a few minutes go by, you know, his, he's, well, well, he's got frozen yogurt. It's starting to melt. Right here. This is direct evidence that this gentleman bought three servings of yogurt for himself and not for him and two friends. Well, like I said, the, the man that he's waiting on, that he's trying to keep an eye on, the guy mm. in the army jacket, he doesn't the come savage. back. He doesn't come back. So uh, mm. Croft decides that he's going to leave. Now, Croft would end up giving a fairly detailed description of, of this man. He described the man as a white male, about six feet tall, mid to late twenties with Mm -hmm. a medium build, dark hair. He was clean shaven. He had a clear, deep voice and a long pointed nose. So Croft just described me. Yeah. I find it very odd that he went into a yogurt shop and didn't order frozen yogurt. Right. That's the only reason you'd need to be there. But uh, then when he orders the soda and then heads off to the restroom, it's like, well, maybe he's just being polite by ordering the soda so he's not just using the restroom and, and, and not paying for anything. Possibly. My guess is that Croft, you know, kind of got the hint that maybe this guy was kind of lingering or loitering for for some time for a reason. Right, right, right. Which Or he's just a complete savage and goes to yogurt shops for a soda. Now we are going to fast forward just a little bit. So just before 11 p.m., there is a married couple who are in the yogurt store. So this is just before closing, right? Just before the girls will lock the front door, Mm -hmm. finish cleaning and restocking, count the register, and then leave for the night. Yeah, and this is the best part of the night if you're the employee. Well, things are winding down. There's only four customers in the store at this time. Well, and you're excited to go home. Yeah, you have the married couple who say that they see two men sitting at a booth. And this is while the girls are cleaning the shop. They're And this is important here. Stocking the napkins in the dispensers that are on the tables and picking up chairs and flipping them upside down and placing them on the tables as they clean each table and move on to the next. Uh, the, the details 
of this couple account, we, we don't have. We don't have them. This is not mm-hmm. something that's been presented to the public. Not everything here has been released but about this particular part of the evening. But the couple says that the men were sitting together at the booth, of course, and they are acting strange. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't know what exactly that means, uh, but the woman says that the man made her uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. The couple leaves the store just minutes before closing time, and the two men are still present in the store when they leave. So we got Creepy McCreeperson and his buddy Old Oddball, and they're the last two known customers in the yogurt shop that night. Yeah, we would call these campers. You know, when I used to work at the restaurant and at the bar, people that just kind of sit there with with basically nothing on their table for far too long and probably, you know, it's so close to closing time. Sometimes it's a few minutes afterwards. We go, oh, I got a group of campers at table 13. Well, and these campers, these creepy campers is what we should call them. Neither one of them were eating yogurt. They are both just drinking sodas. And I know that sounds like such a silly thing to keep harping on, but maybe that's why this married couple, why the woman was kind of so put off by these two, that she thought that they were strange or acting. She says acting strange. We don't know exactly mm-hmm. the details of that, um, but but she's afraid of them. Now, the the married couple has left. As, as the captain just said, we got the two weirdos still sitting at the booth. The creepy campers. Now, closing time is 11 p.m. At 11.03 p.m., mm-hmm. someone pushed the no-sale key on the register. This is opening the register drawer. So this would have been recorded on the register. So we know this happened. It's believed this may have been the start of the robbery and the start of the horrible events to come. Now, just before midnight, then-rookie Austin police officer Troy Gay was on patrol near North Cross Mall. Mm -hmm. Uh, He reported smoke coming from the rear of the I Can't Believe It's Yogurt Shop. Uh, Now, as I said, the yogurt shop is located in a strip mall. And this is just down the street from the North Cross Mall where the the rookie officer is stationed. Uh, According to the media reports at the time, nearly 50 firefighters responded to this call at the yogurt shop. Jesus! After extinguishing the flames, they made a grisly discovery. So keep in mind here what's going on, right? Mm-hmm. We, how destroyed this place must be. There is a fire and a pretty decent-sized one at that. Well, and, and all that the people know, all that the firefighters know, is that th- this is called in as a fire. It's yes. not called in as a burglary or anything. And that's going to come into play because what happens is when the firefighters get there, they start doing their job. They start right. trying to put out the fire. This place is ablaze. Uh, it's a you know a family-owned business. These are franchised. It's connected to other businesses. So mm-hmm. now they're trying to save that whole area. And as they do that, they make that gruesome discovery. Well, and even after they put out the fire, the place is full of smoke. Uh, objects in the store are melted, burned, and ruined. Mm-hmm. Um, there would be soot everywhere and water from the firemen's hoses, so much that there were puddles of water all over the place. Right. One of the firefighters walking through the shop after the fire had been extinguished, he points to something on the floor and he asks the firefighter next to him, what is that? And the object he is pointing to is a foot. Can you imagine the thoughts that are going through that firefighter's head? Well, now a new call has to go out, right, Captain? Because originally they're responding to a fire. Mm -hmm. And the firefighters discovered that we have a fatality. And actually the call that goes out is that they discovered three fatalities after extinguishing the fire. This call is going to the police at this point, obviously. 
And just seconds later, that call from the dispatcher that came to the police police cruiser radios, well, it, it has to be updated because shortly, just seconds afterwards, it's updated to four fatalities were found. Well, now the firefighters have to start treating this as you know a crime scene. And they're already aware that the work that they did to put out the fire has already contaminated that crime scene, which is going to make this way harder for the police officers and law enforcement and the detectives to collect evidence. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I said four fatalities. That is, in fact, the call that went out. But, but technically, Amy, the 13-year-old, she was clinging to life uh, when discovered, but but she died very shortly after after the discovery. So four girls lay dead inside the shop. Three were found together. This would be in the back room prep area. The other girl, Amy, was found closer to the back of the shop. This is near the store's restrooms. And like we said, Amy is 13. Mm-hmm. Sarah is 15. And then we have Jennifer and Eliza that are both 17. To just kind of put into perspective, I mean, we have a couple, we do have two older teenagers, but, you know, Sarah and Amy were, were just babies. Mm-hmm. And Eliza, Sarah, and Jennifer were the three that were found in that back room prep area. Now, they were actually found together. Two of them were stacked on top of one another, and the third girl lay next to them. Investigators believe, as do I, that all three of them were probably stacked on top of each other but due to the chaos when the firefighters were putting out the fire and sweeping the ceiling, walls, and floors with their high-pressured hoses, that the girl, which was on top, was probably knocked to the floor. One of the first responders described the girls as charred nearly to the bone. Mm-hmm. Investigators immediately concluded the blaze was set to cover up the crime. You mean the arson happened to cover up the murders? Yes, yes, sorry about that. But the thing here is, Captain, we have multiple crimes happening in a very short period of time in a small space, mm-hmm. right? We have the arson that was the, the fire set to cover up the murders. Mm-hmm. Was the murders due to something going wrong in a robbery? Because one would assume this is a robbery gone wrong uh, when you start to look at this thing. And there was a robbery. You know, we, we said that the, at some point, no, someone had hit the no sale button on the register. We don't know if this was one of the girls or if this was a robber. Um, but what we do know is there is $540 missing uh, from the store that night. That seems like a very small amount of money to kill four innocent girls over. Yeah. It's it, to me, this looks like it, it makes absolutely no sense. Even if you, if you try to go down the path of a robbery gone wrong, I don't know that you commit four murders to cover up a, a $540 robbery. And furthermore, it seems to me like you could have picked another business where there would have been potentially more more money if this, in fact, if money was the actual object that you were seeking that night. How about you talk a little bit about one of the main characters in this case, Detective Jones? Yeah, so here's an interesting situation regarding this case. Detective Jones was working the night shift that night, and mm-hmm. he was one of the officers that received the call about the fatalities. He's on his way to the store. The strange thing here is he's actually being, he has a ride along that night. Right, he's being followed by a news team. Yeah, they're doing a piece on crime in in the city, uh, and they're following him around. So we get a lot of of news footage from this crime scene right from the get-go. 
So Detective Jones, as you said, he's one of the, not only one of the first law enforcement officers to the scene that night, but he would end up being the lead investigator early on in this case. He's called to the scene and he describes the scene to the news team after he goes inside. He comes back out and he describes the scene as a wholesale of carnage. And to make matters worse, we got four teenagers. Well, and actually at the time, they didn't even really fully know that. I mean, I've heard Jones talk about this case time and time again. And one thing, and I'll try to try to say it as best as I can, but when he's referred to his immediate reaction to what he's seeing, mm-hmm. you know, he says, you know, I've seen burned bodies before, you know, the enormity of that is huge, but, and then to have the stacked bodies, but he says, we couldn't tell a lot back then, right? When we were in the building, uh, we couldn't even tell race or sex. So that tells you how bad the scene was. Mm-hmm. And this shop was, you know, a pretty typical, any kind of retail shop that would be in uh, a strip mall. Mm-hmm. And what we have at the scene is we have the locked front door. Mm-hmm. So we could assume that um, the girls were able to lock the front door mm-hmm. on, on capacity. And then normally you lock the front door. You take care of all your belongings. You might have to run out trash through the back. But they found the back door unlocked and open like a, a crack. Yeah. And the, the owner of the store would kind of help police with the, with this situation to kind of take them through how this closing time would work. Mm-hmm. And what he states is that the back door itself, it's dead bolted and, and there would be no reason for the girls to open up that door that night. Okay. Uh, so, so, they, so, so having they the back have door to throw trash away that night, right? Having the back door unlocked and opened, was strange, was Mm -hmm. super strange to the owner. And it might be just a simple situation as maybe the owner says, you know what, leave the trash near the back door, leave the trash in this location, and I will take the trash out when I arrive in the morning. morning, Now, regarding the front door, it's a little bit of a different situation. It's it's locked. The firefighters found the front door locked. They Mm -hmm. were able to pry it open pretty easily. They're held their firefighters. That's what they do. They kick in doors and bust down doors put out fires, right? But this door itself, it was locked from the inside and it was one of those kind of locks where you would lock it with an actual key mm-hmm. and that same key would unlock it from the outside, right? So the door was locked with the key still in the lock on the inside of the door. Now, what the girls would would do is after they finished up everything, they would unlock the front door from the inside. They would leave taking the key with them lock the door from the outside, and then they would slide the key underneath the door, putting it back into the store. So the people that arrive in the morning, presumably these are people that have their own key, you know, the the owner and maybe a manager or something. Right. They would arrive in the morning and they would pick up that key and the whole process would start right, over. Right. Th- but that way you don't have a bunch of employees running around with the key. Right. You don't have to, a million keys out. All right. So just a quick recap. We have a fire at the yogurt shop, the the, the firefighters show up, they start putting out the fire, and then they quickly realize that we have a murder scene. Mm-hmm. Um, we then have the detective showing up. They can't even identify these bodies because they're so badly burned and so badly charred. They realize then the arson was to cover up the murders. Uh-huh. And then, on. And by the way, we also have money missing, and we yep. have one door open, the other door still locked. Mm-hmm. Um And we'll get into more of the findings right after this quick beer break. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have, 
in a mobile game. Everyone is still talking about Monopoly Go for a good reason. It is an absolute hit. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Like countless crazy tournaments, you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Or timed events, offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in. With Monopoly Go, there's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now free on the App Store and Google Play. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I highly recommend that you give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com garage today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash garage. This show is proudly sponsored by BetterHelp. Check out BetterHelp.com slash garage today. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com slash garage. Visit IXL.com slash garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com slash garage today. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, 
Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. All right, cheers, mates. I'm actually uh, switching over from the Island Reserve to a uh, little Ryan Geist, the truth. Cheers. cheers. Hey, uh, I do want to get into the autopsy report. And I mm-hmm. and here's the thing, though, Captain. This is always tough in these situations, in any case that we go through, because sometimes we cover the autopsy findings and sometimes we do not. Mm-hmm. Uh, and usually, you know, it's a thin line, and you have to decide when you're going to cross that line or, or not. And typically with uh, a case involving teenagers, mm-hmm. um, we would try to stay away from that. But in certain situations, that report could mean a break in the case. It, it can clear up certain amounts of evidence that are found. Well, and also, depending on what you find during that op- autopsy, it changes the suspect that you're looking for. Mm-hmm. And as we said, there the later in this case, there's going to be four suspects that... that are brought to the forefront amongst a whole bunch of other groups of suspects. Mm -hmm. And the problem here is I think you have to review that autopsy report because within that there could be clues as to how many perpetrators it took to carry out this crime. Was it four people? Was it one person? You know, and some of this information helps. And the reason being is, you know, we talked about the West Memphis case, right? Mm -hmm. West, Uh, West Memphis three. So, so just comparing the two real quick, here mm-hmm. and the reason why I think it's important is in this situation, in the yogurt shop murder situation, we have a very we have a very uh, pinpointed time frame of right. when the deaths probably occurred. You're right because we we know that they're closing about eleven, uh, and then we know that the firefighters receive a call and are on the scene about twelve. Yeah, so we have about an hour, mm-hmm. and and we can surmise that that they were killed during that hour period. Now in the West Memphis case, what the big, what the big problem with that case was Mm -hmm. in in my opinion is that they were not, they were not able to nail down the time of death. And that being that there were so many people that have been suspected of that crime, you know, whether it be in the media's eyes or in the eyes of investigators. But one big problem you have there is when you cannot pinpoint that time of death, well, you could have eliminated a lot of those suspects just to what time they, they were murdered. 
Well, right. And if you have a time of death, then you can find out if that person has an alibi or not. But again, here, I think what we're going to find out is, does this point to one person, two persons, four people carrying out this crime? That That's the important thing here. Which is very similar to the West Memphis Three as well. So hopefully this will clear some things up uh, for later on discussion because this shocking case is about to get real cloudy real quick. I do want to be perfectly clear here, though, right? While I do have a quote-unquote autopsy report, um, mm -hmm. and I have very little reason to doubt the following report, but I want everyone to understand something, that this is a third-hand account of the autopsy report because early in this case, it was determined that the autopsy reports should be sealed. And according to some people, um, these are technically public documents mm -hmm. and that they should be made public because this could help with the actual investigation. So what I have here is actually a third hand account of the autopsy reports. This was uh, the reports were supplied by a former attorney to a writer and then a, a writer reviewed them and gave a summary of those reports. So what we have here is, is this report and I'll read it, read it as it goes. Mm -hmm. Um, well, just I mean, the warning is, is this is graphic in nature. So yes, just be warned. So we have the uh, body of Sarah Harbinson, uh, was found nude, uh, found gagged and her hands were bound behind her back with a pair of panties. Uh, her body was severely charred and she had been shot through the back of the head with a 22 caliber gun. Uh, this was a lead bullet, which was recovered from her brain. Then we have Jennifer Harbinson, whose nude body was found. She was not bound, but her, her body was found in a manner that her hands were behind her back. Mm -hmm. uh, her body was severely charred as well. But there was no binding on the hands. No binding, but you don't know what could have been burnt in this right. situation. Mm -hmm. um, she had been shot through the back of the head. And again, a 22 caliber lead bullet was recovered from her brain. Eliza Thomas, she was nude as well and gagged. Her hands bound behind her back with a brazier, And her body was severely charred. Uh, and she had been shot through the back of the head Again, a 22 caliber lead bullet was recovered from her bot from her brain. Yeah, I mean, this is just the scene is horrific. Um, what a tragic scene. Amy Ayers, uh, her body, she was found nude as well with a sock like cloth material wrapped around her neck with a half hitch in the back. Um, this would be the manner that it was tied in. Her body was not severely charred. Now, remember, she was the one that was found elsewhere. Okay, so this might help lead investigators to figure out where the fire had originated from. Um, well, Amy, Amy wasn't badly charred as like the other victims were, but she did have second and third degree burns on about 25, 30% of her body. And she had been found shot in the back of the head, just like the same, same as the other girls with a 22 caliber gun. Um, but the bullet in this case did not enter the brain. However, there was a second gunshot. Mm -hmm. And in this report, it says the caliber is not specified in the report caused this second gunshot caused severe damage to the brain. So possibly two weapons, two Th guns. This would be two weapons, yes. And this bullet exited through the right lateral cheek and jaw area. All right, so is it possibly 
two guns or is it definitely two guns? Well, according to this report, it sounds more like possibly two guns. But mm-hmm. what we would later learn is that it is, in fact, uh, two guns. And I'm going off of this assumption because of the police were looking for a 22 caliber gun and a 38 or a 380 caliber gun. Okay. And what this tells me is that probably at the time that when this autopsy was filed, mm-hmm. uh, when this report was conducted, they may not have found that bullet at that time. And it may have been recovered from the scene later. Right. Therefore, they know that it's a, a 380. Um, the, The report goes on to state that whereas the cause of death for each of the other girls, this is all, this is Jennifer, Sarah, and Eliza, the three other girls other than Amy, was determined by the coroner to be shot with a 22 caliber gunshot wound to the back of the head. The cause of death for Amy was listed as a result of gunshot wounds of the head and asphyxia due to ligature strangulation. Also, unlike the other girls, Amy's fingernails were cut for examination purposes and fingerprints were taken. Yeah. And it seems like maybe that we should just assume that with Jennifer, Sarah and, and Eliza, that maybe their bodies were just so badly charred that they couldn't actually take those for fingerprints. Yeah. I would guess that a certain amount of evidence was lost due to the amount of fire that, that the bodies had to succumb to. But the situation here is it, it's showing us a few different things. Okay. One, it's showing us that Amy is believed to have spent more time with, with whoever was assaulting her or whomever was, you know, killing her. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they clipped her fingernails for a reason. Um, and this may have been, we have a big problem here, right? Captain, because we have one girl that's found back by the restrooms. She's the same girl that is shot twice. The only one that's shot twice. The Mm -hmm. only one where there's mention of possible strangulation as well. So do we have a situation where all four girls are shot and believed to have been dead? And then whoever did this is stacking the bodies so that, because when you burn the place, the whole goal here is if you're trying to cover up these murders is that you want to burn as much of that evidence away and as much of those bodies as possible. Mm-hmm. Do we have a situation here where someone had stacked those bodies and for whatever reason, Amy had survived. We know that the, the bullet didn't hit the brain. And then at some point she started to crawl or to move away from the from, from the stack and was, was tracked down and then killed near the restrooms. And that's fair. I mean, it's horribly sad for the fact, you know, Amy, again, is is the youngest of uh, all four victims. We should also talk about what the city's fire investigator found uh, now that we've gone through what we've heard of the autopsy. So the city fire investigator, Melvin Stahl, he concluded that from reviewing the crime scene that the fire had started in a corner of the shop where the supplies were stored. So this would be where the fire started. Then at some point it, it worked its way through portions of the, the, of the store. Yeah. And with the autopsy and with this, uh, the fire report, this is basically the start of the investigation and looking for suspects and looking for answers of this quadruple homicide. Yeah. And in this situation, detectives are going to do just like what they would normally do in any homicide type situation. You're going to start off by interviewing family members and friends of the victims interviewing the store owner and employees, as well as owners and employees of the shops nearby. You're also going to interview the customers 
who had been in the shop that day and fielding thousands of tips phoned in from very concerned from the very concerned public mm-hmm. because this I mean this this case blew up the city rightfully so I mean people were calling in with tips left and right well and I'm sure there's a bunch of statements from the the store owners next door yeah yeah one such interview was that of the owner of the next door shop this is a party supply store mm-hmm. uh, this man stated that the only thing out of the ordinary for that evening was that he had heard popping noises. And sounds that he had thought were coming from the roof. Uh, he had also noticed the back door to the yogurt shop was open. It, w- it was propped open. Right. And, and this was abnormal. Now, of course, the, the police are assuming that the popping noises that he had heard were probably the gunshots. Right. But one thing we got to keep in mind here is this store is right next door. And in a strip mall, they're sharing. They're basically sharing a wall. So this is not like a huge barrier between the two locations. What What is he hearing? He's hearing popping noises. He's not hearing screams. He never reports hearing screams or, or loud commotions other than these popping noises. So what that tells me is that we have a, a, a group of victims here that seem to be, by going the, by this one account, seem to be controlled by whomever is mm-hmm. carrying out this crime. Yeah, I mean, you'd think... He- <laughs> Well, you'd think also maybe that um, there's some way that they're unconscious at this point, mm-hmm. and maybe that's why they're not. You're not hearing the screams because you'd think that if you're next to your, you know, best friend or next to your sister, and and she got shot, mm-hmm. you know, what you would be doing? Th- that'd be uncontrollable. You know what I mean, like the you could have you could have one uh, suspect on each victim, and that doesn't stop you know, somebody from making some kind of noise once you you start shooting. Yeah. We have two of the victims that are gagged. Um, that may have played a role in that, that as well. Um, but we also don't know what, what's going on inside these four walls. We don't know what's being said to them. Uh, what we do know is just like you said, four victims, perceivably you would, you would guess that, that all four of them would have been shot with that 22. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, three of them were killed by the 22. The fourth survived it, but was shot by it. So you almost seem like you have a situation here where they're being executed one at a time. Right. Um, and you're exactly right. You would expect the the remain the the live uh, people to start reacting to what they're seeing or hearing. Um, somehow, somehow either these these screams were muffled or they didn't happen at all. Right. And, and somehow these the perpetrator or perpetrators of this horrific murder and murders was able to control the scene and control the victims. Well, and like I said, I mean, the possibility, it's, it's just likely to me that they would be unconscious by some level. Mm-hmm. Um, there were only one of them had been reported to show signs of some kind of actual struggle. Um, and that was Amy. She had had uh, what appeared to have been hit on the face with something. Um, and again, we talked about her probably having more, uh, you know, probably a closer attack on her than the other girls. Mm-hmm. Um, the, because of the crime scene being so messed up, you know, because of the fire had destroyed so much of the crime scene, detective Jones, he knew that this would make the investigation very difficult at best to identify and collect evidence that remained at the scene. Uh, I got to say that Detective Jones, I believe, you know, did his due diligence here. He immediately calls in for backup. He reached out and brought in 
several different organizations into this investigation. He brought in the Federal Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. He also brought in the FBI and the Texas Department of Public Safety. Detective Jones was not the only detective on this case. He was actually working with his partner, uh, Detective Huckabee. Plus, having brought in all those other organizations, you're going to have you know detectives and investigators involved uh, from those places as well. Well, eight days into this investigation, we got uh, Detective Huckabee and Detective Jones. They're going to receive a break. Yeah, this would be a 16-year-old boy. His name is Maurice Pierce. Mm -hmm. Now, he had been picked up at the North Cross Mall. Remember, we had said this was the mall that was just blocks from the crime scene. And he's picked up because he's carrying a 22 caliber handgun. Mm -hmm. Yeah, during questioning, Maurice Pierce, he said that he had lent the gun to his friend, Forrest Wilborn, who was 15. And Wilborn had said that he had used the gun to commit the yogurt shop murders. Right, now, if at this point... As far as detectives go, you're thinking, done, solved. Yeah, yeah, and but you got to do your due diligence because you, you need evidence if, 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 in fact, this Wilborn character carried out the murders. Mm-hmm. So one thing that they do is that they hook uh, Maurice Pierce up, and they're, they're going to record a conversation that he's going to have with Forrest Wilborn. And Forrest Wilborn has no clue, according to the recording, what, what his friend Maurice Pierce is talking about. Right. And, you know, they're trying to get this, they're trying to get some idea if Forrest Wilborn was actually involved. Now, when they bring in Wilborn, he immediately denies any involvement. Uh, but he did tell investigators that he and Pierce, along with two other boys, this would be Robert Springsteen and Michael Scott, that at some point they had stolen a, a, a vehicle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this, they had stolen a vehicle because they wanted to joyride to nearby San Antonio. Uh, This was a stolen SUV. This took place not long after the crime, but it was that admission that put Springsteen and Scott and the other two boys on the police radar. Right. Nonetheless, after lengthy questioning, Jones and his team, they dismissed Maurice Pierce as a suspect. Mm -hmm. They concluded that he was lying about having lent the gun to his friend and his friend saying that he had used it in the murders. That's just such an odd thing to lie about, though. Well, in, in the thing here with Jones, too, is Jones speaks very frankly to everybody. And, and mm-hmm. I, I like the cut of his jib. I like his character. Nice jib. And, and one thing that he said years later, you know, when brought up the fact of Maurice Pierce and they found him with the gun. And now you, you're talking to his Maurice Pierce's three friends. He basically says, yeah, we had to deal with him because he got caught with a goddamn twenty two. And Jones would go on to say that, it, yes, it's the same caliber as one of the two guns used in the crime, but it became clear to Jones that neither Pierce nor Wilborn had any connection to the crime at all. When he describes Forrest Wilborn, he describes Forrest as, Forrest had no clue. He says, this is a guy that couldn't organize a two-car parade. Yeah, that boy didn't know chicken shit from chicken salad. He was no criminal mastermind, that's to, you know, to say the least, in, in Jones' opinion. Moreover, Jones says that Maurice Pierce, his gun, that twenty two that they found on him, it did not match the ballistics of the crime, which right. is a strange which is a strange thing because then he almost immediately says that and he points this out and he's rightful rightful to do so, but stating that twenty twos are typically thought as throwaway weapons because the ballistics, uh, the bullets are flattened 
uh, because they're a softer, smaller bullet. Right. And this usually leaves very few few clues which would help match them p- to a particular gun. Uh, but the gun that they checked on Pierce was just one of 75 guns. They test-fired 75 guns, and they never found a successful link to any of the guns that were used in the crime. It seems like Detective Jones and uh, Detective Huckabee did a really good job of trying to let the evidence tell the story yeah, and not to come up with a theory and make the shoe fit. You're exactly right. And the other thing here, too, is we from Jones's statements, future statements, we can we can verify that there was that second gun, even though and, and we know now that the autopsy report was not complete because Jones would tell us that the there was a second gun used in the crime. This was a 380 pistol used to fire the single shot into Amy. Uh, and he stated that a big part of their investigation, which was right to do so, was looking for that 380. He said, mm-hmm. because while most 380s have a particular twist to the rifling of the barrel, the one that was used in the yogurt shop murders, it had an opposite twist. So if that gun could be found, which who knows? I mean, it still could be found right. even 25 years later. This would be a tremendous help to closing this case and to figuring out who did this crime. Well, it seems like this 16-year-old Pierce is a little bit of a nutcase, right? Oh, I mean, yeah. he's he's basically saying, well, I got this gun. He seems like he's being kind of braggadocious about this whole idea mm-hmm. of, um, you know, my friend was involved, you know, and then it just seems odd. And, and like I said, Detective Jones is going, well, the shoe doesn't fit. Right. And then we have this other detective that comes in to actually interrogate Pierce. Yeah, and I, I want, before we get into that, I want to go into this just a little bit more here because mm-hmm. Detective Jones, he's not a rookie detective. Okay, at this point in his career, he's investigated over 140 homicides. So this is a seasoned detective. This is a guy that knows what to look for. He's probably put many, many people behind bars mm-hmm. for those murders. Now, this situation, like you said. Do we just have some dumbass 16-year-old boy? And I can say that because I was once a dumbass 16-year-old boy. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and I know how You're some... You're still a dumbass 16-year-old boy. I know how some, some of these things work, mm-hmm. okay? So do we have a situation here where this kid, and and he's probably not a, you know, a good, you know, a do-gooder. He's probably not the, right, a right. good Samaritan. He's walking around a mall with a with a gun. And, <laughs> and you know, could could you see kind of a dumbass 16 year old kid kind of bragging to his friends like oh you see this gun this 22 caliber it's it's the same kind of gun that was used in the yogurt shop you know uh not meaning it's the exact same gun um the other thing too though like what you were going to get into is this other detective that was involved in the investigation at the time but we also see in the west memphis three there's a lot of accounts whether these were made up accounts or not was that, you know, Damien Eccles was going around town basically, you know, bragging about that he was involved, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, and and he states things like, well, I had people asking me if I was involved, so at some point I just kind of joked, joked to them to their face, right, you know, right. which came back to, to, right, to, to really be a bad idea. Yeah, bite you in the ass. Probably much like this Maurice Pierce person. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have a detective um, who's no longer a detective. His name is Hector Polanco. Now, He's an interesting guy, right? He is a guy that that Jones would say, you know, we learned this years later that Hector Polanco was responsible for getting for having a bad name. Yeah, for getting many <laughs> many people to confess 
to crimes that they did not commit. <laughs> what a skill. Yeah, yeah. He 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 was he was strong in the area of coercion, right? He also That's, interviewed Jesse Meese Kelly. So which he did not. We don't no, want anybody right, to right, get no, confused no, no. there. Um but what he's saying is that when they brought in Maurice Pierce and they wanted to really grill him right put the hammer down right so they stick him in an interrogation room with this detective polanco and polanco was not <laughs> able well, this is a bad name it's a regular name i'm sorry if your last name is polanco most of our listeners have the last name polanco 95 <laughs> percent of our listeners are polancos what he's saying here is that if polanco could not get this maurice pierce to confess to the crime mm-hmm. he didn't do it he absolutely didn't do it. And that's that's Detective Jones saying this out of experience. Okay, so do you think, listen, I'm just hypothetically, right? What do I think? We have Pierce in a room. Mm-hmm. We, we don't know if he did it, right? Right. But they call you in. Oh, he's in the room because they assume he did it. Okay, no, I'm saying hypothetical. That's what hypothetical is. Oh, I'm is, sorry. It's fictitious land. Okay, we just have a suspect, right? Mm-hmm. And, and they call you in. Columbus PD calls you in. Hmm. And they say, we want you to get him to confess. You think you could do it? Uh, no, no, I don't. I don't think I would have that skill. You don't think you watched enough detective shows or like SVU or anything? Uh, there was a detective that, that worked a famous case up in Canada, was mm-hmm. a serial killer. And I can't remember his name, maybe McDonald. I can't remember his name. He was the guy that was involved in the, the Air Force up there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is a guy that would not be easy to break. Uh, and I watched, they had a lengthy video of him interrogating this guy and he got him to, to talk eventually. And this really? was, this was not like, this was not like a guy that just got into the air force. This was a guy that was very high ranking officer that, that had spent 20 some years in the air force up there. Right. And he was a respected individually individual in the community, as well as in the government, uh, government's eyes up there. Right. He He would be the type of criminal that you would think that you wouldn't be able to get him to spill the beans, so to say. Right. Right. And this guy was able to do it. And I, I sat there and I watched the interrogation like three times because I thought, oh, if I could just pick up something here yeah. then you could use this on anybody and it would work. I, I, I could tell you right now, I don't have that ability. Well, maybe it was just his time to tell, you know what I mean? Maybe it was just this building up inside him and it didn't really matter who asked. Well, him, I got to admit when I, when I first sat down and I heard about this situation, I, exp- I was being the ever, ever being the skeptic that I am. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I expected it just to be something, all your typical run of the mill interrogation. This guy, he was never like aggressive or forceful with anything. Um, I don't even think he ever lied to the guy that he was interrogating. But he got him to confess. He got him to start talking. And it was, I thought it was masterful. Yeah. And I know there's like some techniques that they use. But uh, one of our uh, buddies that is a Columbus uh, detective always talks about, he never claimed to be like a super intelligent guy. Mm -hmm. He worked hard, uh, did his job, but he wasn't like into like the psychology of trying to figure out criminals and all that stuff. And so he would just go in, have them talk, you know, confess. You know, and and maybe they did confess, but it would be like bits and pieces. And then he would just go, okay, well, I got to go talk to this guy. And he'd go out, you know, pretend to talk to the guy, get another cup of coffee, come back and go, we got to start from the beginning because you're lying. <laughs> and then he would just do that about five or six times. And he's wear like, him down. Eventually, they're just like so confused and thinking that this guy has to know something 
then they just start spilling the beans. You know, I don't know if we're talking about the same guy, but there, there's a, a detective that I spoke to, and this is a very, this is a pretty regular technique, mm-hmm. I'm assuming, but I had never thought of it at the time. But one thing he had told me, because I'd asked him, I was like, you know, how many times in these, when you're questioning somebody, do you just outright lie to them? Which I've always thought was strange, but you're allowed to do so. Right. Um, And he told me that, you know, he's like, a lot of times you don't have to lie to them. And he's like, it's really about the way you word things. And he said, you know, if if I were talking to somebody that we suspected robbed an ATM machine, well, what am I going to use? I'm going to use their knowledge. Their general knowledge that they may know, and I'm going to mix in a little bit of stuff that we might know, but I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to have to lie because I could look at the guy and tell him, well, what if I said to you that we have you on camera committing this crime? Right. He's not claiming that they do, but then immediately the guy's thinking, well, of course they have cameras at these ATMs. I was at that ATM. And then a lot of times I was not at the ATM. And then you go, well, that's impossible. Right. Yeah. Well, now's the point in the investigation because look, that's your big lead, right? Going back to the four teenage boys that are picked up, that's your big lead. And then that after you investigate it and you put them through the mill there, it really goes nowhere for them. It doesn't check out. Exactly. It doesn't, it doesn't fit the crime. Uh, so now police are going to start focusing in on the freaks, right? Because you've, you're, you've exhausted some of your leads and you got to start looking into, well, what's going on in the area. Yeah. And, and also just to keep in, you know, our minds on the time frame. this is 1991. This is two years before West Memphis three. And, and so we, this is the height of satanic panic. Yes, and that's that's part of the freaks that they're going to start focusing the investigation around. They're going to check in with known uh, Satanists in the area, rapists, uh, mm-hmm. violent offenders, and serial killers. And because this is an extremely violent crime that took place, right? And you would you would think that if you have to find somebody outside of the circle of the victims or outside of the circle of the shop itself that now you're going to have to look for people that are capable of such horrendous violence. Well, and that's one of the things that Detective Jones said is is he didn't even believe that the, the four that they had were capable of something this horrendous. Mm-hmm. Let's go into the thought of the serial killers that we had mentioned, right? So in 1992, we have a man that is picked up, and his name is Kenneth Allen McDuff. Okay, now some of our listeners are. This name is going to ring bells with them, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a serial killer, and he is. He was actually first convicted of raping and murdering three teenagers way back in August of 1966. Um, he killed three people, like I said, in 1966, and he was he was known as the broomstick killer. Mm-hmm. And you think, well, why is he involved in this 1991 case? Well, he was, he was caught and Texas had a problem. Okay. Nowadays we know Texas is one of the fast track States yeah. where they, they, they convict people and they execute people with, with a quickness, uh, that's not carried out as fast in other States way back then. It was a bit of a different situation. Okay. Because you did have the, the, uh, capital punishment, the death penalty was abolished in 1972. So even though that he was convicted and sentenced to death back back in 66, that was abolished in 72. So they end up commuting his sentence to life with the possibility of parole. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, which is ridiculous. Which you also have another you have another bad thing going on here in in the state of Texas. At some point in his in his while he's in prison, there's an overpopulation problem. Okay, all of these prisons are getting heavily overpopulated. So the idea here is you got to let some of these guys out to create some space for the new guys coming in. Yeah, the thought that here like is a great idea. Well, he was he would not be high on their list of people to release, obviously, right. because he's an extremely violent offender. Right, three murders. So what they start off with doing is letting out the nonviolent offenders. Mm-hmm. Well, they do that for quite some time, and even though. It doesn't create enough space. So at some point they have to start releasing violent offenders. The problem here is he had served quite a bit of time and he was considered to be older. And therefore the thought would be that there's a better chance of him being rehabilitated when you compare him to a prisoner that had only spent a short amount of time in prison. Right. But you have three murders under your belt and three rapes. So, you know, hey, let's send this guy out because he's too old for that. So due to the extremely crowded prison, Texas prisons, McDuff is paroled in 1989. Now, actually, upon his release, McDuff is arrested on a series of parole violations, but he's not locked up for any substantial length of time. What happens here, Captain, Mm -hmm. is that in late December of 1991, along with an accomplice, uh, he is in Austin City, Texas. They pick up a woman named Colleen Reed. Now, she is at a a car wash. Now, this car wash is not terribly far from the yogurt shop, right? They pick her up and abduct her at a car wash. And basically, I don't want to go into the details of of what takes place after that, but she is killed. She's killed that night. Mm -hmm. And her body is, is not found for quite some time. And it's not found in 1992. Um, What happens here is... He would, after being released, he ultimately ends up killing a couple of people, and he's suspected of killing many more people. The thing here is, he he's in the area at the time, right? And he's a very bad guy. And and second of all, he's there's some similarities to this crime as to his old crimes. He was known to have raped the victims before killing them. He was also known to have tied them up, and a lot of them they to use their own belongings. You know, we talked about these girls were tied up with, with socks uh, that were theirs and, or panties. Yeah, exactly. And he, he had done similar things with stockings and, uh, and panties and things like that. Shoelaces before. Um, the thing here is though, that that's strange is that if he were to have been involved in the yogurt shop murders, Mm -hmm. this would have taken place December 6th, 1991. He picked up Colleen Reed December 29th in Austin, 1991. It would be hard for me to believe that he uh, would have stuck around. You know, we're talking about a guy that was probably moving about quite a bit, especially moving about the state of Texas. It would be hard for me to believe that he would stick around for almost a month after that crime. Yeah, but not unheard of for a killer to stick around. No, you're exactly right. You're exactly right. Yeah, and with Colleen Reed, he had an accomplice. And so, you know, a lot of people believe, and I think a lot of the evidence points out that it was at least two people uh, that, you know, did these heinous crimes at the yogurt shop. So, again, uh, you have two people in the Colleen Reed, and those same two people 
you know, just uh, you know, less than a month earlier could have done this. It is possible. I do want to go through real quick how McDuff was eventually picked up. Mm-hmm. Um, it wouldn't be until March. Uh, it was March of 1992. Uh, there was an abduction and there was a murder of 22-year-old Melissa Northrop. Now, Northrop, she was working at her job as a clerk. This is at the Quick Pack convenience store. This is in Waco, Texas, uh, when she was abducted and driven from the location in her own vehicle, which was the 1977 Buick Regal. This car was found abandoned five days later, uh, but it wasn't until April 26th that her body was found floating in a gravel pit about a mile from where the car was discovered. Her hands had been tied behind her back with shoestrings and a sock. Uh, She had been strangled with a rope. Uh, Police were led to McDuff after his abandoned vehicle was found parked near the store. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he had once worked with Northrop at the store and was arrested. He was tracked down in Kansas City May 4th, 1992. This was after they had shown his picture on America's Most Wanted and received tips that, of where he was located. Yeah, and this is frustrating for the cops and frustrating for the detectives because clearly, you know, you know, this fits his MO, you know, and you have this serial killer, you have this, you know, this animal, and and you really want it to to be pinned down on him. Yeah, you he has to be looked at, right? Because even you might not be able to link him to the area at the exact time. But the problem is he's somebody that is certainly capable of such. Yeah. And he has to be looked at. And this is somebody they did look at and they looked at him very hard. Just couldn't connect the dots to, to make it fit. Yeah, but this will not be the last time that we hear from McDuff in the in this case. No, and this also will not be the last time that we hear we bring a serial killer into the investigation. Mm-hmm. Um, this investigation is really, I mean, it, this case doesn't go cold for quite some time. The investigation is very hot. You're talking about a situation where we have almost 400 suspects. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've had thousands of people interviewed, thousands of tips received. We've had people that have been interrogated, questioned. Yeah, and these cases normally don't go cold because of the amount of pressure that they're getting put on the departments from the communities. Yeah, and this case would ultimately see 50 confessions, right? And it, six of them being written confessions. So we don't have time. To, you know, we got to do this in part two obviously, but we'll get into some of those confessions. We'll get into some of these other suspects, including more about McDuff and the other serial killer. All right. And we our recommended reading for the week is? Yes. Our recommended reading for this week is Wolf Boys by Dan Slater. Uh, This is the story of two American teens recruited as killers for a Mexican cartel and their pursuit by a Mexican-American detective who realizes the war on drugs is unwinnable. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is... This is what it's like to be an employee of a global drug trafficking organization. And this also talks about how a 15-year-old American boy goes from being a star quarterback to a trained assassin. This case also takes place in Texas. That's right. And, and more specifically, the border town of Laredo, Texas, where you know sometimes people grow up poor, uh, the streets are dangerous, and sometimes Mexican-American teenage boys would end up joining gangs like the Zetas, mm-hmm. which is a drug cartel with roots reaching back to the Mexican military. Uh, Wolf Boys is a true story. It's the true story of a couple of teenagers that joined the Zetas. This is a brutal journey into the heart of the Mexican drug trade. 
and a good-natured teenager turns into a feared assassin. So pick up Wolf Boys by Dan Slater by going to our website, truecrimegarage.com. Click on the recommended page. You're going to see all kinds of books on there. And you can do that by going through our Amazon banner. And we want to thank you for joining us in the garage today. Tomorrow we'll pick up right where we left off. We're, we're the detectives down in Austin City are hot on the track of finding who did this horrific murder. And we're hot on the track and we're bringing you along with us. So until tomorrow, be good, be kind, and don't let The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.